Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you here this morning. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. Having said that, I encourage you to turn now to Genesis chapter 12, continuing our way through this glorious book. And this morning we find ourselves looking at verses 10 through 20. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. So I'll read those verses for us. But before I do, as always, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. That he has preserved for us. That he is having preached for us this morning. That we might be edified and built up. And so let us receive it as he gives it to us. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake... He dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Let's ask him to bless it to us. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we humbly acknowledge together that you are wisdom and you give wisdom. That from your mouth come knowledge and understanding. And so we ask now that you would cause us to receive your words, and to treasure up your commandments. By your Spirit, make our ears attentive to wisdom and incline our hearts to understanding your word. Lord, we call out together for insight, and together we raise our voices for understanding. By your grace, cause us to seek it like silver, And to search for it 
as for hidden treasures. For then we will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We ask these things in Jesus' glorious and mighty name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you're a believer here this morning, my assumption is that when you were first saved, you probably had a similar experience to what I had when I was first saved by God's grace. And that experience is that on the one hand, we're exhilarated, aren't we? We're thrilled at this news that God has graciously for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him. He sent his son to do everything necessary for us to be reconciled to him. And in him, we're a new creation. We have peace with God. We're forgiven our sins. We're declared righteous and we're adopted into the very family of God. And so it's almost as if you're experientially walking on air. And in that exhilaration, when you're a new believer, one of the things that you underestimate, if you think about it all, is the trials and tests that the Lord is going to bring your way. And even if you think about that, you think, you know, I'm going to do fine through that. The Lord's going to sustain me. I'm going to grow in righteousness. But what we underestimate is how much we fail, how much we're going to fail, When God sovereignly, lovingly, graciously brings tests and trials before us into our lives and we respond sinfully rather than in faith. You see, we underestimate how much it's God's intention by exposing us to tests that our sin is actually exposed. And we actually struggle with that quite a bit, don't we? We we can tend to struggle with, is God really going to forgive me? Am I really actually a Christian? And you see, the reason I start with this experience is because we're in good company, brothers and sisters, if that was your experience as a new Christian. Because as we look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20 this morning, we find Abram experiencing the exact same thing. Right earlier on in verses 1 through 9 of Genesis 12, we see the Lord graciously calling this pagan, Abram, to himself and saving him and regenerating him and promising him, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so I will bless you, Abram, with land and with offspring. And you will be a blessing to the nations. And we see Abram receiving this with great faith and venturing out in great faith to go to a land that he doesn't know leaving everything behind that he does know. And he doesn't know where he's going, and yet he does it. And we think, man, surely, with good reason, Abram is held up as an example of faith to us, and rightly called the father according to the faith for us. And yet here then in verses 10 through 20, what happens? He comes crashing down from the heights of faith into the depths of unbelief and sin and distrust that God will keep his promises. And so we see his experience is much like ours, isn't it? And yet, brothers and sisters, here's the incredible reality that we're going to see from this text. Even in the face of our sin, the face of Abraham's sin, the face of Israel's sin, the face of your sin and my sin, the gracious God who entered into this covenant relationship with us, 
also sustains and maintains that covenant relationship graciously. It's not ultimately based upon our performance. It's not based upon that at all. Because if it was based upon our performance, the covenant would end every time we sinned. And yet what we see here is that even in the face of Abram's disbelief, God is faithful to his covenant promises and to his covenant people. That was true then, brothers and sisters, and that is true today as well, because God doesn't change in his dealings with his people. And so as we see that together, I want us to follow the arc of the story here under three headings. First of all, we're going to look at Abram's fear in verses 10 through 13. We're going to see that Abram has some legitimate fears and he has some illegitimate fears. The legitimate fear he responds to in faith and the illegitimate fear he responds to in sin. And as a result of that sin that he commits, we're going to see that that ends up putting his wife in a really bad situation, a horrific, terrifying situation. And so secondly, we'll not just look at Abram's fear, but we'll look at Sarai's plight in verses 14 through 16. The situation that Abram's sin has put his wife in is very bad. And then we're going to see that the Lord rescues Sarai. He rescues his people, even in spite of their sin. And so thirdly, finally, we'll look at God's faithfulness in verses 17 through 20. And here's the thing I want us to note as we walk through this historical accounting of Abram's life. I don't want you to miss something very important. Moses is intentionally using language as he relays, because Moses is the author here in Genesis. He's specifically using language in Abram's life so that our minds go back to Genesis chapter 3 during the time of the fall. He uses language from and examples from there so that our minds go back to that time period, showing us that all of this is a result of the fall. And then secondly, and more predominantly, he's also using language and examples that point us forward to the exodus that the Israelites are going to experience under Moses. So in other words, what Moses is doing here in relaying Abram's sojourn and then exodus out of Egypt, is he's saying this is prefiguring the exodus that the Israelites are going to experience later on in the book of Genesis. What's the pastoral intent of doing that? The pastoral intent is to say, listen, you're suffering like your father Abraham did, like the people of God are called to suffer. And here's the thing, even in the face of your sin, the same God who was faithful to Abram will be faithful to you, O Israelites. And brothers and sisters, that promise transfers to us as well this morning. Whatever our sin, whatever our fears, whatever our plight, the Lord will be faithful to his covenant promises. He will deliver us and he will glorify himself in the midst of all of that. And so as we look at this together and this unfolds before us, let's look first at Abram's fear as we find it in verses 10 through 13. And let's begin by looking at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in 
the land. So what's the first fear that Abram has here? Well, this is a legitimate fear, by the way. There's a famine coming. This is really unfortunate. We don't know how much time has elapsed between when he left his hometown and now is here in the promised land, but he's not there probably very long, and a famine befalls the land. Oh no, I thought this was God's promised land to me. And yet, even in the face of this fear of what's going to happen to me and my family and the land, in light of this famine, we see Abram responding in faith. And the first way that we see him responding in faith is that he actually goes down to Egypt. Now, some commentators want to say, well, he's sinning here because he wasn't commanded by God and he didn't consult with God before he went down. I don't buy that argument. I think he's actually making use of the means that God has provided for him to care for his family. Look, the Lord strategically placed me close to Egypt. I'm going to go down there so that my family can survive because I believe the promise that God has made me that he will bless me with a land, bless me with offspring, and I will then be a blessing to the nations. Now, we don't only see his faith there in the going down to Egypt, but we also see his intent as he heads down to Egypt. And that reveals to us, again, his faith. Because notice in verse 1, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn. That verb there indicates for us that his intention is not, all right, well, The Lord's promises have failed in the promised land that he told me he was going to give me. So now I'm going down to Egypt and I'm going to settle there. No, that's not what Abram's doing. He's intentionally going down for a season so that his family can make it through this famine and then he will go back up into the promised land. And we actually see that happen, by the way, in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 1. And so again, we see as these fears come, this first fear anyway, Abram is actually responding in faith, which is exactly what we anticipate he will do after we see how great his faith is earlier in chapter 12. Now, this also, I told you, these realities and the way that Moses relays this to us is pointing us forward to the exodus that the Israelites would experience under Moses. This is the first example we have of that. Because remember, why do Jacob and his sons come down to Egypt later on in Genesis chapter 47, verse 4. You remember, they come down because of a severe famine, don't they? And Egypt is able to bless the nations with the food that they have stored up. Why? Because Jacob's son Joseph was raised up by God to respond to this famine and prepare for it very wisely. And so we see God keeping his promise. But you, again, see the similarities. Moses is intentionally couching this, showing, listen, Israelites, whatever exodus you go through, whatever you experience, Abram, your father, experienced it first. And so this isn't evidence that you're not his people, but rather that you are his people. But here's the thing. He's not only afraid of that in faith. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. And so what do we see here? We see him fearful. Abram's got eyes. He knows his wife is attractive. 
He knows that she's a beautiful woman. And he knows the nature of man. And so he says, well, the nature of man, when he sees something that's beautiful, is to covet that and to want it for himself. Now, he ends up actually being right about that. We'll see in just a little bit. But then he goes too far by saying, and they're probably willing to kill me in order to possess you for their own. And I think it's John Calvin, if I'm remembering correctly, said that this was one of the sins that Abram commits. That he's assuming the absolute worst of his neighbor. And by the way, he's not right in his assessment of Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't kill him at the end we see, even after Abram's given him very good reason to kill him, for lying to him. Instead, he lets him go. But you see, Abram has this fear that they're going to kill him, a male, and then take Sarai, because she's beautiful, a female, as their wife. Now again, this points us to the Exodus, doesn't it? Doesn't this have a ring of familiarity to you during the time of the Exodus? What happens in Exodus chapter 1 verse 16? Pharaoh sees the growing population of the Israelites. God's keeping his promise that Abram's offspring would be many. And Pharaoh's nervous and he says, man, if they get any bigger, if they keep growing in population like this, they'll be able to overthrow our empire. And so in order to protect it, he commands the Hebrew midwives, kill all of the male infants that are born. But let the females live, grow up. They'll marry Egyptian men, because those will be the only men around. And then they'll be assimilated into the culture, and we won't have to worry about the Israelites causing an uprising. It's horrific that he commands abortion like this, but it's also very shrewd as a pharaoh for him to do that. But you see, this is again with... Abram worried about him being killed as a male and Sarai being spared as a female. This is pointing us and prefiguring for us this great exodus event that's going to happen later. And it's highlighting God is faithful to his people. Now, what's Abram's solution to his fear? How does he say he's going to solve the problem? Well, look there at verse 13 with me. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So what's the solution in Abram's mind? Well, just tell him you're my sister. By the way, we find out later in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 13, when he does this again with Sarai, she's my sister, to Abimelech, he ends up revealing to him, this is my common practice. This is my decided practice wherever I go. I have Sarai lie and I lie that she's my sister so that men won't try to kill me. But how is this a solution? Well, the way that this is a solution to his fears, he thinks he's protecting himself, the one through whom the promises will come, and he thinks he's actually protecting his wife. Because remember, Terah, Abram's and Sarai's father, right? Sarai is Abram's half-sister. Yep, don't think about that one too long. But that's the situation. Terah, their dad, isn't there. And so in a situation like that, the brother then steps in and he's the one who negotiates the betrothal and the marriage proposals that come the way of Sarai, his sister, right? And so what he's going to do then is if pursuers are getting more and more aggressive, he'll push them away as best as he can. And if he thinks they're between a rock and a hard place and they need to get out of there, then they'll just bail. This is what Abram's thinking. This protects my wife. This protects me. But he's sinning. He's not trusting the Lord. He's not trusting that the Lord will keep his promise and protect Abram and 
protect Sarai. And so instead, they concoct this plan. And so, do you see, brothers and sisters, again, Genesis 12, 1 through 9, the height of Abram's faith. And then we see it in no short order come crashing down. And we see him weak in faith and not trusting the promise of God. And so, in response to these fears and these trials that are breathing down his neck, he relies on his own devices, takes matter into his own hands, and he lies. Now, in one sense, brothers and sisters, this should be a little bit encouraging to us, shouldn't it? I mean, Abram is just like us as far as being a fallen, saved human being. Because isn't this our experience? Isn't this the experience of Peter? Lord, you are the Christ. And then in the very next vein, you know, the Lord has to rebuke him for his sin and say, get behind me, Satan. And so we see that in God's people, there's this mixture, isn't there? Both of belief by God's grace and also yet remaining unbelief. And so, brothers and sisters, we must guard our hearts when the promises of God seem like they're not going to be fulfilled in our lives. And we're tempted to then take matters into our own hands, especially lying and deceiving. And how easily we do that, we ought to reject that and say, no, I trust the Lord. I lie to myself and I lie to other people, but the Lord never lies. And so I will trust him even through this trial. And one of the ways that we face those trials is by understanding, again, as we've already mentioned, that who brings those tests and trials our way? They're not happenstance, brothers and sisters. This famine that came to Abram on the land, that was ordained by God. And the test of going down to Egypt and the fear that Abram experiences, that was ordained by God. And so we must trust him that he does so wisely. He does so lovingly. He does so kindly that he might cause us to grow more and more in sanctification. Now, here's the thing. The sad reality is that we often don't think about our trials and temptations this way. The testings that the Lord brings our way. And so we do respond in sin. What are we to do in that situation? Well, brothers and sisters, we are to look, even as Abram did here. You understand, the man of faith, Abram, is not the perfect man of faith. He was strong in faith by God's grace, but he wasn't perfect in faith. And so Abram was looking forward to the one, and we look to the one, the perfect man of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh so that he might be perfectly faithful in our place, perfectly exercising faith in all of God's Word and all of God's promises and living out of those. He did that in our place. So that perfect track record of faithfulness is counted as ours. And he died on the cross paying the penalty for our sins. The penalty for all of our unfaithfulness on the cross. And so we look to him in the face of our failings. We repent of our sins, look to him in faith. And we carry on as we face the fears and trials and temptations that the Lord sovereignly brings our way. So isn't it amazing to behold the provisions that God has given us in his son so graciously as we ourselves face our fears and as Abram often fail in the faiths of them. 
Now, here's the thing. This decision that Abram makes to lie results in a really bad situation for Sarai. And we'll see that that some of his fears actually come true, but one of them doesn't, and it ends up landing his wife in a world of hurt. So let's look at Sarah's plight then in verses 14 through 16, looking first at verses 14 and 15. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. All right, that's exactly what Abram thought would happen, right? Great, so I came up with this plan. That'll help address this. But then look at verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Isn't this often the way of our world? Right? This is how covetousness gets stoked in the heart of fallen man. A bunch of men you know, look at something that they desire, that they think is beautiful, and then word spreads and they start to flap their gums and, oh, isn't she beautiful? Oh. And then finally, word gets to, to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, of course, well, covetousness just running amok. Well, yeah, if she's beautiful, then I've got to have her for myself. And so then something happens that Abram did not expect. Abram did not factor in to his plan, Pharaoh just outright taking with his supreme authority Sarai from Abram. And yet that's exactly what happens. She's just taken from him. And what can Abram do to protect his wife? Well, you might say, well, he could tell Pharaoh the truth. Yes, and that's exactly what he should have done. But he can't take up arms, can he? He's just this little clan that's beginning, doesn't have any offspring doesn't have an army. He can't take on the Egyptians. And so here is his wife in this awful situation because of his sinful choices in which he led her. Now, again, we have to pause here and realize that this is, again, prefiguring for us the exodus that's going to come, isn't it? Because what's happening here? Well, Sarai, God's people, she's in bondage. She's in slavery. She didn't volunteer for this. Hey, Pharaoh, I'll come join your harem. She didn't volunteer for this. She was just taken. And so now she's in slavery. She's in bondage. She can't just walk out and say, I'm going to leave. No, she'll probably be struck down. And so this is pointing towards, forwards, to the slavery and bondage that God's people would experience under Pharaoh and the Egyptians later on. And so again, whatever happened to you, Israel, first happened to Abram. And the Lord faithfully delivered him, and so he will deliver you as well. Now, it's also pointing us back to the fall. Did you catch that, this language that Moses uses here? He's using language that reminds us, has echoes of when Eve sees the fruit that God tells her not to eat from. She sees it, and she sees that it's a delight to the eyes. It's beautiful. And so then what does she do? She reaches out, and she takes it, and she eats it. And this is exactly the the same kind of language. The princes of Egypt see the beauty of Sarai. They behold it. She's pleasing to the eyes. And so Pharaoh then reaches out and takes it. Once again, in the book of Genesis, someone reaches out and takes something that is not theirs. And then what ends up happening? There's a separation between the husband and wife. You see how brilliantly Moses is putting this all together? This is all a result of the fall. This is all a result of man's sin. Things are not as they ought to be. And so Sarai is in this horrible, horrible situation. Now, interestingly, surprisingly, 
Sarah's plight actually enriches Abram. Now, in one sense, it doesn't enrich him because his wife's not with him. But it enriches him in the sense that materially, he gets very wealthy. So let's look there at verse 16. And for her sake, he that is for Sarai's sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So think about this. Because Pharaoh has taken Sarai, he now says, well, as recompense, I'm going to shower you with wealth. And this is all, everything listed in verse 16 is just shorthand for the fact that Abram is now very, very, very wealthy, exceedingly wealthy. And so he comes down to Egypt as a sojourner, and now he's this honored guest, this wealthy, honored guest in the eyes of the Egyptians. Now, again, if you've got Exodus on the brain, which I hope you do, you again see a similarity to the Exodus that the Israelites will later on experience under Moses here. Because do you remember back in Exodus chapter 12, after all the plagues come upon the Egyptians and the Israelites are preparing to leave, what happens? We read in Exodus 12, 36, the Lord puts it in the hearts of the Egyptians to give their wealth, to give their possessions to the Israelites. He puts that kind of favor in the hearts of the Egyptians toward the Israelites. And so Moses records for us that the Israelites actually plunder the Egyptians as they're leaving. And so that happening to you, O Israelites, that happened to Abram first. When he went down fleeing a severe famine, and Pharaoh took Sarai, and then he put, the Lord put it in Pharaoh's heart to give these wealth and riches to Abram. And so again, we're seeing the parallels, we're seeing the similarities, we're seeing the prefiguring and the foreshadowing of what will happen, and that this is a paradigm, what's happening to Abram for God's people. And yet, through all of it, God will faithfully be with them and sustain them. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, again, that's true for us as well. This is all paradigmatic for the church. What happened to Abram in his exodus in Egypt? What happened to the Israelites in their exodus in Egypt? You understand, brothers and sisters, we're in exile ourselves as believers. We're in exile ever since Adam and Eve ate that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God kicked them out of the garden. We have been wandering in exile. Even as the church, we're still in exile. The people of God. And so we're waiting for that exile to end when Jesus comes back. But brothers and sisters, that ought to shape the way that we live life in this world. This world is not our home. This is not where we belong. As Paul says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, for we, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so as you look at your lives, brothers and sisters, when you look at the way that you interact with your friends or your spouse or your kids or the way you think about your wealth, your home, your future, your career, your health, your wealth, whatever it is, do you cling to that as if that is your life? As if this is all there is, all that you can see and feel and taste and touch? Are you living your life as if this is all there is? 
Because if that's true, you're not living as God intended us to live. We're in exile. We have no home here. And so we hold on to those things loosely as the Lord gives them and the Lord takes them away. We ought to live as sojourners, just like Abram did, just like Israel did, just like Jesus himself did in his earthly life and ministry. And we should arm ourselves with the mindset that if Abram suffered, yes, for his sin, no doubt, and Israel, yes, for their sin, no doubt, Jesus, not for his sin, but for our sin, no doubt, then we ought to arm ourselves with the mindset that we will suffer as well. And so we have to wait patiently. (laughs) We wait patiently for the greater exodus that is coming our way, understanding that in the meantime, we are in exile. And we'll sin as we wait. So may God grant us repentance and faith to look to the perfect man of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we do so. So the good news is the story doesn't end there. Right? Because that would be, <laughs> there'd be no hope for the promise here. Because the promise isn't just to Abram. All right, now Abram, go find another wife. Have kids with her. He tries that later on. That blows up in his face too. No, the promise is to his family. To his household. And so he's got to bring the family back together. And so we see then that the Lord is faithful to his covenant promises. He keeps them and he keeps his promise to Abram. And so let's look then thirdly, finally at this third point, God's faithfulness in verses 17 through 20. And we'll begin by looking at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So who's the rescuer here? Not Abram. What can Abram do? I mean, again, he could open his mouth and say, she's actually my wife. Pharaoh ends up finding that out. We don't know how. But who's the rescuer here? Who saves the damsel in distress? It's not Abram. He's the one that got the damsel in this distress. It's the Lord. The Lord comes and he rescues her. And how does he do that? He sends plagues. He plagues, literally in the Hebrew, he plagues Pharaoh and his household with plagues. It's repetition to show how great they were. Which, by the way, I think gives us a reasonable conclusion that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh with this so that he actually didn't touch Sarai. She was untouched because the Lord, I think it's a reasonable conclusion. And that's the Lord protecting his covenant people. And so the Lord does this. He afflicts them with these plagues so that they're miserable. And somehow it comes out that This is all happening because of Sarai, right? Do you see the language there? Great plagues came upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarai, Abram's wife, in her protection. So the Lord's keeping his promise. And we can't bring up that word plagues in the context of a sermon where we're talking about the Exodus so much. And your mind immediately is going to drift somewhere, isn't it? This reminds you of the plagues that the Lord brings upon Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7 through 11. The Lord says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he's not going to let you go, Moses, but you command him to. And I'm going to bring all of these plagues and they're just going to riddle God's enemies, riddle the Egyptians, plague them, terrorize them. And I'm going to bring this about to protect you, my people. 
so that you're eventually delivered, so that you're eventually sent out of Egypt. So again, do you see (laughs) the similarities that Moses is trying to highlight for us here? So the Lord brings these plagues upon Pharaoh and his household. They find out that it's because of Sarai. And now notice Pharaoh's response. I just think this is great storytelling right here. I don't say that to mean that it didn't actually happen, but it's good storytelling. So let's read Pharaoh's response in verses 18 through 20. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And you know what? Just to cap it off, look at chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. He goes back to the promised land. This is his little exodus. But before we get there, isn't it fascinating how Pharaoh, this pagan king, whom Abram assumed the worst of, is like, what is wrong with you, man? I mean, Pharaoh, this pagan king, has, has a higher sense of morality than God's chosen. This one through whom all the nations would be blessed. Abram's not being a blessing to the nations here, is he? By lying and by sinning. We see it sadly through taking matters into his own hands and relying on his own devices. He ends up bringing curses upon the nations instead of blessings. And so Pharaoh says, what's wrong with you? Because here's the thing. Even in the ancient world, we can know this, brothers and sisters, just from the light of nature. It's wrong to take another man's wife. And so Pharaoh says, what makes you think that I would do that? Let alone kill you to get her. What? And so he rebukes him. And he says, what's wrong with you? And what's fascinating, again, Moses is using language from Genesis 3. So that our minds go back there. Our minds go back to the fall. And Moses is using language where the Lord questions Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve eat the fruit and the Lord comes and he says, where are you? Because they're hiding. He knows where they're at. But he says, where are you? And he says, who told you you were naked? And he says, what have you done? This is all very similar language. Where the Lord's interrogating them. Exposing their sin and their guilt. And now here a pagan king is opening his mouth and accusing Abram. And Abram says nothing in response. And this is highlighting for us his clear guilt. His clear sin. And the fact that all of this is happening because of the fall of mankind. Now, the interesting thing is that after this rebuke, what does Pharaoh do? In verse 20, look there again with me. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And then Abram and his wife go back up into the promised land. That verb there of sent That verb is used again and again and again all throughout Exodus. When Moses says, let my people go. Let my people go, right? He's the mouthpiece of God. Let the Israelites go. Let them out of here. And then eventually Pharaoh does send them. And it's similar language. It's the same verb. And so what we're seeing is, again, Israelites, what's going to happen to you first happened to your father, Abram, and God was faithfully 
with him so that he actually leaves Egypt wealthier than when he came down. And, oh, Israelites, the exact same thing happens to you. And so, brothers and sisters, what do we see here again? As clear as day, wow, do we see the sin of Abram that was going to cost his wife so much, put the promise of God seemingly in jeopardy. And yet not even the sin of this patriarch can cancel out and negate the promise and covenant of God. Still God is faithful. And so lest you think, yeah, sure, Abram enters into the covenant relationship graciously, but now he has to sustain it by his own works. Moses obliterates that with this example and says, ah, don't you know his story? Look, right out the gate he sins. And yet the Lord keeps his promise and he protects Abram and he protects Sarai. And again, brothers and sisters, in some ways, isn't this a comfort? Aren't we this fickle? Yes, we are. Now, I'm not saying, okay, so let's sin so that the graciousness of the covenant can abound. Now, Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 6. You don't get it if that's your response. Rather, when we see the Lord keeping his covenant promises, even in the face of our sin, that ought to make us hate our sin all the more. And say, Lord, that gets me nothing. What am I doing? Let me trust you instead of myself. And here's the thing. Brothers and sisters, for those of you out there who tend to have a more tender conscience. And so when you sin, your go-to is not, well, of course God forgives me. I'm a generally good person. Or, yeah, it's just easy for you to believe that the Lord forgives your sin. For those of you that it's not easy to believe that the Lord forgives your sin. Look here at the example of Abram. Look at the Lord's gracious dealings with him. Because your go-to when you sin is, that's it, God's done with me. I've done it again. I sinned in this way. There's no way he has any more patience for me. He's going to cut me off. He's done. What do we have here in the example of Abram? That's not true. The Lord is gracious. The Lord forgives. The Lord works repentance in us so that we turn from our sin and hate it and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. So don't add to your sin in relying on your own devices by then further relying on your own devices and thinking that you've got to somehow earn your way back into God's good graces because of course you're going to despair of that. You can't pay back the infinite debt that sin incurs, but Jesus did. So in your lack of faith, when you sin, look to Jesus, the man of faith, and know that he is faithful to his people as they struggle to believe that he will keep his promises. And you see, here's the thing. (laughs) This example of Abram and his exodus here in Egypt, it's not just pointing us to the greater exodus that the Israelites will experience under Moses. You understand that even that greater exodus is pointing us to the great exodus, the greatest exodus that Jesus will bring. You understand, you remember in Luke chapter 9 at the transfiguration, Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah in their glorified state. And he's having a conversation with them. And Luke relays to us that what Jesus is talking about with Moses no less and Elijah is his departure. That's how we translate it in the English. In the Greek, it's his exodus. 
And so you see, brothers and sisters, that exile that we deserve for our sins, Jesus comes, the Son of God comes, and he experiences that exile. That separation from God, if you will, on the cross. And so then, we're now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are able to enter into the Holy of Holies. That's why that veil is torn in the temple when Jesus is dying. He's brought about this greater exodus. And here's the thing. The finality of that exodus hasn't even come yet. Because we're still in exile now. When will that final great exodus, the culmination of it, be brought about when Jesus comes back? Again. And he takes us to be with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we will dwell with him forever and rule and reign with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's when the full culmination of all the promises made to Abraham happen. And so we're waiting for that day and we're in exile. And so as we have fears, brothers and sisters, that come our way. And we're tempted to sin. And sometimes we do sin. Let us fly to Christ. The perfect man of faith. The one in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen. And trust him. No matter what our plight. Because no matter how bad things look. No matter how fallen we still are. No matter how fallen this world is. No matter how much our enemies may hate us. God is faithful. He will keep us. He will protect us. None of his promises to us will fail. Even as we fail him. And so we ought to rejoice in that. Rejoice in his faithfulness. Rejoice that he doesn't leave us in our sin. But works in us repentance. And increases our faith. And he continues to be our God. And we continue to be his people. I love how Matthew Henry just in closing summarized this entire little example of Abram's life. He says, God's care of his people is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why? Because God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so even as he was faithful to Abram and Israel and Christ himself, so too, brothers and sisters, will he be faithful to us. So let us trust him by his grace. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we so encouraged by the sheer display of your grace and love and kindness towards Abram, our father in the faith. And we thank you that the same God that showed those covenant mercies to him and then later on to Israel shows those covenant mercies to us. And we see them more clearly because your son has come. We pray that as we lay in exile here, waiting for Emmanuel, Christ, to come again, that we would be faithful, and in our unfaithfulness, that you would keep us, that we might repent and turn from our sins, that we would do that even now if we're clinging to sins, Lord, and look to Jesus in faith. You are faithful, and so we know that your mission will be accomplished, the mission that you gave to Jesus, that all the nations will come people from every tongue and tribe and nation, and believe in Christ. Bring that about in part through us, through sovereign grace, as we continue to faithfully follow you, Lord, by your grace. And may we faithfully proclaim the gospel to those here that we come into contact with in Bakersfield. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.